With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you for listening to The History of the Papacy. I am your host, Steve. You can find show notes, how to contact me, sign up for our mailing list, and how to support The History of the Papacy by going on over to our website, a2zhistorypage.com. Speaking of supporting the show, Patreon is a great way to do that. We're at patreon.com forward slash history of the papacy. And The History of the Papacy Patreon has four tiers, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, each representing one of the traditional patriarchates of early Christianity. An inclusion on the History of the Papacy diptychs is your greatest benefit. The earlier you sign up, the higher you are on the list of those patrons who are commemorated. Little history of the papacy diptychs fun fact. Pope Stephen II took over the papacy after Pope Zachary all the way back in the 750s. Wikipedia claims that Stephen II was one of the Roman noble family Orsini popes. That would be true, except the first Orsini pope wouldn't be elected for about four-ish hundred years after this time period. Now let us commemorate the Patreon patrons on the History of the Papacy Diptychs. We have Roberto, Joran, William B., Brian, Jeffrey, Christina, John, Sarah, and William H. at the Alexandria level, Dapo, Paul, Justin, Lana, and John, all of whom are magnificent at Constantinople. And reaching that ultimate power and prestige, that of the Sea of Rome, we have Peter the Great, Leonard the Great, and Alex the Great. As you well know, we are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring Josh Cohen's Eyewitness History Podcast, among many other great shows. We are joined again today by Will Clark of the Gray History Podcast. That's gray with an E for my American listeners and maybe Canadian listeners who are accustomed to pronoun- for spelling gray with an A. Do Canadians spell gray with an E or with an A? I'm not sure. Now, getting back on track here, in today's episode, Will and I will look at the French Revolution and what role the church had in that revolution. This is more complicated of a topic than it appears. There was 
fabulously wealthy clergy and poor clergy. There was up-and-coming clergy, and there was the entrenched power elite clergy. Each of these groups had their own incentives and goals, so that's what we're going to explore today. With that, here's the next piece of the mosaic of the history of the popes of Rome and Christian Church. What's going on in France? What gets us to this uh, revolution? Why is France going to have really a lot of people will say the the modern period starts 100, 200 years later. But in a lot of ways, we're getting modern right now in the French Revolution. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with how the church, what the church is looking like at this point in time and then and then build out into what's happening more broadly in French society. So to pick up on the point that you were just talking about, um, the French church or, or the church within France at the, on the eve of the revolution was incredibly divided. When we talk about the French Revolution and French society, we generally use the term the three estates. And that's because every member of society belonged to one of these estates. And you can think of them, they're not quite like classes, they're a bit more like castes. Uh, and essentially, the first estate was members of the church, the second estate were members of the nobility, and the third estate was everyone else or the commoners. And so the vast majority of the population sat within the third estate. Um, but if you look at those three estates, they all had their own internal tensions and internal divisions. But you could definitely make the argument that it was the first estate, it was the church, that was the most divided. And if you start to have a look at the the, the situation with the church, it, it's just an absolute mess of competing interests and priorities. And so, and, and this is very important to understand how the revolution really kicks off, because at key points in time, it will be the church, or in particular, um, members of the church who were originally commoners that will push uh, uh, the kind of their weight in favour of the commoners or the third estate and really energise the revolution at, at particular points in time. Um, now, there's a range of reasons why the church was seeing a whole bunch of tension. You were mentioning that there were some that were more in the spirit, uh, spirit of the Gallican church where they wanted a kind of separate but equal um, status for the church alongside the Pope, you know, they they wanted to be in communion with the Pope, but they didn't want the Pope to be intervening in French affairs. Um, you also had tensions between the lower clergy, so people that originally came from, uh, say, the middle class backgrounds, or um, those from the higher clergy, the upper, the kind of higher bishops and, and archbishops, who were almost always aristocrats originally. And so, you know, to give you a taste of what some of this looked like, um, if you take the Archbishop of Strasbourg, for example, he had a yearly stipend of 450,000 livres per year. Um, a priest would earn about 750, which is a 600 times difference. Uh, you then overlay onto that that the church is not meant to be a profit-making corporation, but is actually meant to be providing charitable means, poor relief, hospitals, uh, moral and spiritual guidance. And the misuse or the extravagancies of the higher clergy create a lot of resentment and tension between them and members of you know, the lower clergy who, who in some cases, particularly if they were in the countryside, might live, you know, very, very modest lives. And so the church was really just this uh, can of contradictions immediately prior to the revolution. 
Um, if we take a step back and then go, well, what about church within French society immediately prior to the revolution? As I said before, nominally, 97% of the country was Catholic. Um, the church also only being about 0.5% of the French population owned about 10% of French property, French land. And if you think about uh, land in these times, land and wealth are synonymous. They're, they're joined at the hip, much more than they are today where, where most of the richest people in the world have, have made their money through means other than real estate and, and direct land um, enrichment. So uh, the church was in this great position, but if you then scratch under the surface, uh, to your point around um, things like the Enlightenment and the like, it wasn't necessarily as strong as it might look. Two years prior to the revolution in, ninth, in 1787, um, there was toleration granted for Protestants, uh, which was seen as a real blow to uh, French Catholics who believed that they should have a monopoly on uh, religion within the state. You also have evidence of waning, um, uh, well, kind of adherence to orthodox views. So, for example, in the century prior to the revolution, the number of pregnant brides almost doubles in number. The number of priests actually almost declines by half. So there's a range of facts that you can look at and go, well, yes, the country is nominally 97% Catholic, but, you know, only half of Parisians were taking communion on a regular basis. So just how Catholic France was is a bit of a matter of debate. It's not quite clear. Um, the one thing I would say to that, however, is that particular communities, it, it very much changed on a regional level. And so you, you, at this point in time, only one in five Frenchmen would have lived in a community of more than 2,000 people. It is primarily a rural um a rural state. You know, if you think about that, the average citizen probably lived in a community of somewhere between six to 800 people. You know, if you're on, if you live in a city and you get on a packed train in the morning, uh, you know, your train could be your entire community that you were living in at this time. So um, what that meant is that particular communities were still very much true believers and their priests and bishops played uh, a huge role in their everyday lives. Uh, now, if I take all those step back and go, okay, well, what's this revolution and, and where are we, you know, where are we? Um, after the American Revolutionary War, uh, the French participated in that war and essentially that and other conflicts bankrupted the French state and the state uh, needed to raise uh, tax revenues because they could not meet their budget deficit as well as service their existing loans and to do that, uh, they needed to start taxing the first and second estate. They needed to start taxing the church as well as the aristocrats who, by and large, got out of paying any sort of tax burden. It's not; it's a little complicated, but by and large, they got out of it. And so um, the aristocrats and members of the church unsurprisingly said, you know, no, we don't want to pay any taxes um, and tried to use it to their advantage. And in many ways, the the French Revolution actually starts a bit more of an, as an aristocratic revolt than anything else. Um, however, as those groups are arguing for political power, the commoners, the third estate, take advantage of a range of things, including reduced censorship, enlightenment ideas, and are also powered on by uh, high costs of living and high bread prices and the hardships that those produce to essentially create a more general revolutionary and revolt-like environment. 
um, the royal the, the royal government is forced to call an advisory body, a traditional advisory body called the Estates General, which hadn't met in almost 200 years. The royal government was quite against doing that because they felt like if they called the Estates General, that would be a nod towards the kind of constitutional monarchy that Great Britain or England at this point in time had. Um, but they had to do so anyway, and sure enough, uh, as the, you know, the, the nightmare of the royalists came true, and that advisory body known as the Estates General uh, proceeded to go rogue and unilaterally declare itself the National Assembly and place upon itself uh, powers akin to something like a parliament or a congress as well as a constitutional convention. Uh, and it is worth noting, just before I wrap up there, that um, at key points in time in uh, the deadlock between uh, the Estates General and members of the government. It was members of the church, particularly the lower clergy, that actually backed the commoners and broke the deadlock in their favour. And so we see initially, although the revolution and the church end up being arch enemies, and you get essentially what is a holy war, you get a de-Christianisation campaign, you get a complete, you get a prisoner pope, it's, it's a complete mess. But initially in 1789, you actually get many prominent revolutionaries coming from the lower clergy. And initially, the church, or at least mem some members of the church and the third estate, you know, not only don't have a hostile attitude towards each other, but are actually working in, in a cooperative manner. Steve here with a quick word from our sponsors. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus hey everyone i'd like to say something about a new product i've tried called calatrin Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. 
Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP23065 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP23065 and I really do recommend you give this product a try and I'll talk to you next time. Yeah, you bring up so many interesting issues and I think one of them is and that I didn't fully understand was how split each of these estates was that the third estate, there were bourgeois who were, even though they were technically third estate people, they were pretty wealthy. But then you also had peasants who were completely uh, poor. But even amongst the the aristocracy, you had dirt poor aristocrats and then obviously super wealthy and then inside of the church, you have these fabulously wealthy bishops, bishops kind of in the middle of that, priests and bishops. And then, you know, your town bishop or town priest, rather, who was dirt poor. And it creates all sorts of different politics. Like you could honestly see why a poor town priest or maybe a bishop of kind of a backwater place might want a connection to somebody like the Pope because it's the Pope can be somebody to play off of this bigger bishop. Uh, I'm not really, you know, yeah, I have to answer to my archbishop in Strasbourg or Paris or something, but come on, guys, let's be honest. The Pope's really the big guy here and the Pope should be telling you what to do to try and help me out a little bit well and indeed so so uh, one of the great things about the french revolution is just before that estates general that advisory body was summoned by the king all the estates were asked to draft up uh what in english we call lists of grievances so each community each little kind of parish around the the country um and then within that the members of the clergy the members of the nobility and the members of the commoners separately drafted up a list of grievances. And so we have thousands of documents knowing what the chief grievances and the chief problems of communities are all across France before what is one of, if not the greatest revolution uh, in, in modern times. And you can see within those lists of grievances for the church that each individual community has just got its own priorities and its own problems that it's trying to solve. And, you know, the rhyme or reason between them, you know, between geographies can can be so incredibly diverse. But one of the themes that you pick up on, there are some common um, complaints. And one of them, for example, is absentee bishops. So you'll see priests complaining that their bishop or their archbishop has essentially you know, being installed into that into that diocese and then has gone off to the court in Versailles and is essentially living the high life, maybe gambling, maybe drinking a little too much, and is and is absent from the community that they're meant to be looking after. And so that's to your point, that's where someone like the the Pope or the king would be great to be able to call upon and, you know, ensure bishops of merit and ensure that they weren't absentee. And in fact, some of the reforms that the revolutionaries will force upon the church will focus on some of these common grievances. Maybe it's a little bit of a break before we jump into the the revolution proper. When you're doing your research, 
Do you see a difference? I don't know how much, um, and I, I don't, I don't think I've gotten to the point where you, you talk about your sources uh, in specific. But do you get into uh, French sources? Do they have maybe a different spin on it than maybe the French Revolution than what we might get in uh, reading the sources through an English uh, eye, you might say? Uh, so I suppose um, there's two ways to answer that question. So, so first of all, I would say a significant number of the sources that I use uh, were originally from French historians or French writers or French eyewitnesses that have been translated into English, um, which helps give you a different perspective. Although, of course, you can, uh, in, the, in the process of translation, um, you know, kind of change the subtleties and nuances of, of what the text is trying to, to convey originally. Um, in terms of the you know kind of raw French text, I don't speak French, uh, so um, kind of there is definitely times when I'll see a footnote in uh, uh, an English text, for example, that's referencing a French text, and I really want to understand what that foot you know I, you know it's maybe a few sentences, and I actually want to try to figure out what well, what's the page or the the chapter that that uh, source is referencing, um, in which case you know, you can kind of reach out to members of the community or the supporters of the show, French speakers that you know, and get them to help translate a larger piece of work, uh, you know, a few pages or the like, so that you can get a better sense of of that fact or that quote or whatever it might be that you saw in an English text. But, um, you know, as someone who's not a French speaker, I am limited in 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 that. So the, the best that I can do is to make sure that there are um, French historians and French eyewitnesses that I, I'm reading, uh, in addition to, you know, historians from other countries, and, and also a big thing of of what I try to do is is you're trying to to not only read material uh, from uh, contemporaries and eyewitnesses both inside of France and outside of France at the time, but also in the decades and centuries afterwards. And so, if you know, in, in my show, I put a premium on bringing in. Um, the opinions of historians and contemporaries and eyewitnesses. Some people that are, you are hearing from, you know, you might hear from someone who has published their work in 2015 and that is then, you know, being compared to or, or being uh, built upon by someone who has published their work in, you know, 1847. It really varies. Um, there's, there's no shortage of materials on the French Revolution, which, which, makes, um, which means there's a lot of reading to do, but it's also um, you get quite a, a good view of the thing. Initially, the French Revolution really seems to parallel the American Revolution, but then they really greatly diverge. What's hap What's happening in the French Revolution? Yeah, so I suppose um, it, so. Absolutely, the, the they initially um, have, seem to have much greater parallels, um, and in fact, you know, initially uh, just after. Uh, the revolution commences. The Marquis de Lafayette, who plays a, quite a prominent role in the American Revolution, um, he's a member of the Estates General, which transforms into the National Assembly, and he actually introduces um, a document, uh, the Declarations of Rights of Men, that he, um, you know, was very much modelled on the American model. Um, but for a variety of reasons, the revolutionaries do not follow the American model. So, for example, they decline to introduce a Senate. They will only have a, a, a one chamber in their national legislature. Um, but in terms of why the two diverge so much, I mean, that's a complicated question, but in, in, in a quick answer, one big thing is that the revolution, you're, deal you're dealing with a, with a much older country 
with with very powerful, uh, very wealthy institutions, being the church and the aristocracy, and you're dealing with a nation that is literally surrounded by enemies. Um, now, yes, the English and the and the Spanish were maybe not the most menacing for the revolution, but in particular, the 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 Austrians, the Prussians, the Holy Roman Empire, the papacy. You know, the the revolution really does feel that it's in a corner against entrenched counter-revolutionary aristocratic uh, papal, eventually papal interest. And so that creates a culture of fear and conspiracy that you just don't get in the American Revolution. And, and that, that drives the revolutionaries towards war. It will actually be the French that creates or so that starts the Revolutionary Wars in 1792, um, and it's the revolutionary slash Napoleonic wars that gripped the the continent for a quarter of a century. Um, and so th- so that's one big thing. You're dealing with a country that has, you know, institutionalized wealthy opposition to the reforms that are being introduced and can call upon, or or at least they think they can call upon foreign armies um to to literally, you know, kill the kill the baby in the crib, so to speak. And so so that is a big factor as to why you have a very different culture of the revolutionary conscious than you do in in the American Revolution, um, amongst other reasons, but that, that would be one of the obvious things to point to. Yeah, one thing that I was uh, thinking is maybe the American Revolution would have gone in a French Revolution if certain things like Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, the more populist aspects... Uh, where the the American uh, third estate, you could almost call them, if they had pushed some of these issues and the the central government had lost control of them and the the more the proper government, the state's governments had really lost control, then you might have seen things really go down a very different path of maybe a more French revolutionary path. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the the American Revolution, but one thing that you were when you, in, while you were talking that did come to mind is you you do have in the French Revolution in particular, you know, Paris is is just this giant metropolis for the times. So you know, we're dealing with a country at this point in time that is about 26 million people. There's only eight towns or or, or regional centers that are above 50,000 people in size. And Paris is sitting at maybe, call it 700,000. So it is this huge metropolis. And so um, that gives the heart of the revolution immense power. Um, And you don't quite have... Well, you just don't have the, the 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 states in the American Revolution, which have have which are already thinking them of themselves as political entities that are joining together. That idea doesn't really exist in um, in France. The 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 old regime, um, the regime prior to the revolution, had incredibly uh, centralizing tendencies. Um, there was some decentralization initially when the revolution started to get going, but then once the war kicked in and necessity kicked in, it, it became incredibly centralized again. So you're just dealing with a, a situation where for a variety of reasons, um, the the country just was not, um, you, you know, it was just, a, it was a much bigger country with it, with a much longer and complicated history, which, Combined with the challenges it faced, you know, was was quite different. Even though some of the inspirational ideas for the revolution were similar to the American Revolution, the challenges and the situation it found itself in was was actually probably more different than most people might think. 
Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app. Are you a man who thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a day? According to a recent internet meme, you definitely do. And why shouldn't you? Here's a clip from Tom Holland talking about Rome at the very height of its power. When tourists go to the Colosseum, they're not really going there. I suspect most of them, because they're admirers of Flavian architecture, I suspect that they're going there because it's the kind of the shiver that you get of going to a place where blood sports have happened. To listen to more of this discussion, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. Where did the revolution go? How did it, in short, as short as we can, uh, as an overview, go after this point of when it starts to go down the road of more violence and more uh, It's definitely not going to just be a mild reforms. It's going all in. Yeah, so it's actually the revolution's conflict with the church actually has a has a decent um, uh, a a decent impact on why the revolution you know morphs into the the revolution that it does. So maybe I'll just start with with how the relationship with the church soured, and then use that to springboard more broadly. So initially, as I said. The, the kind of all-consuming conflict between the revolution and the Catholic Church and the papacy just didn't exist. There were many prominent revolutionaries in the National Assembly, at least initially, that came from the church. However, as uh, the National Assembly started to reform the country, and, and, and with the old regime, you're dealing with a very um, archaic and outdated and, and just illogical um, system of government that they were trying to standardize and rationalize, they inevitably started to want to reform the church. And one of the first things that they did, which really created, um, you know, a fair bit of tension, but wasn't, wasn't um, an irreversible split, was they nationalized church property. So the church owned 10% of French land. And depending on the community, they might even own a greater proportion of that land. So they owned almost uh, 25% of the property in Paris, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, the key reason why we get the French Revolution in the form that we do is that the state was facing bankruptcy. They, they had a financial crisis where they could not pay their bills. And so the revolutionaries looked over to the church with this huge amount of wealth and huge amount of land and pretty much said to themselves, well, we've got a use for that. And so what the revolutionaries did is that they forcibly seized, they forcibly nationalized church property. And the logic that they used for this was essentially that the reason why the church was so wealthy was that over the centuries, French nationals, French citizens, had donated property to the church and the church was meant to use that property to provide things like poor relief, to sponsor hospitals, to sponsor poor houses, to provide education, um, and also to do things that we would nowadays associate with a secular government, such as maintain, you know, the registers for births and deaths and marriage. And so the the, the new national government, the National Assembly, pretty much said, well, what we'll do is we'll partly take responsible for some of those things. We will start to pay the priests out of the national 
uh, budget. You know, they will essentially become salaried employees of the state. And uh, as a result, because we're paying the priests and because this land was originally donated to the church for the benefit of the French nation, well, the French nation needs it. And so the way it's going to benefit the French nation is the government essentially seizing it and then selling it off to meet their their budgetary demands. Um, now, initially, this did not create an irreversible split with the church. There were some members of the church that were actually supportive of this. They thought that this would rem- rem- remove some of the corruption of the church, some of the opulence of the church, return the church to its more traditional um, uh, priorities of preaching and being moral and spiritual guidance and not being caught up in the, the trappings of wealth. But, of course, the vast majority of the church and, of course, the Pope we're, we're dead against this. Um, but then what we have over, you know, that's, so that's, you know, the revolution really kicks off in mid-1789. The nationalisation of church property towards happens towards the end of 1789. But it's in the middle of the next year that that things really just to, you know, just go, go haywire, really. Um, and that's with a policy that's called the civil constitution of the clergy. And this policy was seeking to do a range of things. But essentially what it was seeking to do was reform the Catholic Church so that it could be a a church that would act in harmony with the new constitutional monarchy and also be separate but potentially equal to the the papacy. And so it was seeking to modernise the church. And so what it was seeking to do was introduce a whole bunch of things that some of those lists of grievances had demanded. So, for example, it started to crack down on absentee bishops um, and it sought to make bishops and priests uh, be nominated by merit. And so the way that it wanted to do this was actually to introduce elections. I mean, the big one of the big things about the French Revolution is the introduction of democratic values and, and eventually uh, universal male suffrage. Um, and so what they wanted to do was introduce um, elections for priests and for bishops. Um, because, and, and the argument was, was well, these individuals are now salaried employees of the state, and so therefore, like every other salaried employee of the state, they should be elected. Now, the problem here, there was a few problems here, but one of the key problems here was that meant that any citizen, any French citizen, could participate in these elections, which meant that Protestants, atheists, um, people of other religions could potentially participate in these elections. It also meant that some of the most uh, passionate believers in the Catholic faith, uh, in particular women, so half, you know, half the congregation, were not allowed to vote in these elections. Uh, So that was one thing that the civil constitution did. Another thing was that it tried to standardise the various um, parishes and dioceses of the country which resulted in a significant amount of changes. It was trying to standardise things, um, reduce like the overlap and duplication. Uh, but what that meant in that some communities is that their local parish church would have to close down because they were running on the assumption that you'd only have one parish church for every 6,000 people. Um, in a city like Paris, for example, which had 52 parish churches, it would lose um, or parishes, it would lose 19 of its parishes. So there was a significant amount of closure of religious buildings and the like as a result of these reforms. And then finally, the main thing that they did, and you'll be able to talk about just how infuriating this would be to uh, to a papacy that saw itself as being more muscular, 
is that they essentially banned bishops from being able to bring in the Pope in any dispute. Um, the, the, the king and the French church um, were completely, you know, were functionally separate from the Roman Catholic Church and the Prince of Rome. They could inform the Pope about what they were up to, but literally that was the extent of what they could do. Um, they weren't allowed to appeal to the Pope to adjudicate on anything, and the Pope was not allowed to get involved in matters of the French Church. They, they wanted to create a separate entity. And you can imagine just how, you know, intolerable that was to, um, you know, to the Pope. Now, where this started to really go wrong is that some of the uh, bishops and priests um, pretty much said that they weren't willing to sign up to this. You know, they weren't willing to have their parish closed. They weren't willing to uh, have... Protestants helped to elect Catholic priests, and so they started to refuse to comply with the wills of the government. And the government, believing that this really was an administration issue that the church had no right to oppose, and in fact viewed the church as corrupt in some regards, and and therefore, you know, of course they were going to resist it, essentially started forcing it uh, forcing it through. And eventually, they required all priests to take an oath of allegiance to the law and to the country and to the constitution. And about half of the priests across France refused to do so, uh, particularly by the time that the Pope came out and, and publicly condemned these reforms. And so that then created, you know, what was essentially a schism between the revolution and the church, where you had half the priests of the country willing to swear an oath of loyalty and allegiance to the constitution and the other half not willing to. And so we call these these the second group of priests, uh, refractory clergy or non-constitutional clergy or non-during clergy. And essentially, they refused to move. They refused to, to, to leave their churches. They refused to leave their parishes. And they insisted on continuing to preach, but they did so without the authority of the government. And they would often heckle and intervene and harass those priests who we call constitutional or patriotic priests that did take the oath and was subsequently elected into office. And so all across the country, in every city, in every town, in every small rural community, you start to get this um, battle between constitutional priests who took an oath to the constitution and non-constitutional priests who have followed the Pope and who are refusing to obey these new rules. Um, the Parts of the country, it very much differs on how this looks like. So in some parts of the country, um, you know, the proportion of priests that swear the oath versus not swear the oath, maybe you have 80% versus 20%. And in other parts of the country, it might be a more even 50-50 split. There's a whole bunch of analysis about things that might have driven this behavior. So for example, priests that were less financially secure, older priests, were more likely to take the oath because then they could get the salaried um, their salary from the fed, from the federal government. Um, those priests that were, say, um, lived in towns and were surrounded by other priests and not as isolated were more likely to reject the oath. Um, likewise, priests that had aristocratic backgrounds or more wealthy backgrounds were more likely to reject the oath, while those that were from, say, the lower middle class that really valued the education that they might receive in the church were more likely to take it. So geographically, it's this real hodgepodge where some regions you might get 90% swearing the oath and in other regions you might get 90% refusing to do so. I mean, that's really fascinating and it shows you how uh, diverse it was oh, it's just, it's, and divisive. It's, 
Yeah, absolutely. Like it's the thing about the, the the French Revolution is that you just cannot talk about France as one entity because it, it, it at a at a regional level it's just so different and so unique. Um, now to get to your question of what why did this start going? You know, why did the revolution start souring? Well, as the revolution became more and more obsessed with the danger of counter revolution of nobles of aristocrats who particularly had left the country and were now walking around Europe trying to rally. Uh, Prussian and German and Italian armies to invade and crush the revolution, um, you know, the revolutionaries, the patriots within France started to become more and more worried about fifth column elements, about, about traitors within, about seditious plots. And you've got these priests, literally tens of thousands of priests across the country that are getting up in churches that, you know, that they, from the government's point of view, shouldn't be in and are preaching essentially that the people should ignore the federal government. Um, and worse still, they are preaching the authority of the Pope. They are maybe preaching various things that um, that collide with the official line from Paris. And so over time, these priests start to be viewed as enemies of the revolution. And so then when you get into a situation where France finds itself at war, that war actually starts quite terribly and then France starts to get invaded, you know, it, it doesn't take much to see how these priests go from a nuisance to actually a seditious element that is undermining the war effort and undermining the revolution and in cahoots with the Pope and other aristocrats and their objective to crush the revolution and to bring back uh, the old regime. And so from there, you know, you can see how you get the government starts passing laws about banishing priests, forcibly detaining priests and and removing them from French territory. Um, and so you can start to see how the snowball starts rolling down the hill. And before long, particularly when the Prussian army is almost at the gates of Paris, you know, these priests, which are, which are number half the priests in France, are, are viewed as enemies of the people. Um, and so that in conjunction with the war, is really what really radicalizes the revolution, um, in addition to things like uh, high cost of living, high bread prices, uh, high, uh, you know, um, the, the, just the, the raw necessities of life being quite unobtainable, you get a very radical, um, you get a very radical, radicalized situation, which then leads to quite bloody situations. Um, and, and ultimately, results in a de well you know a, a semi state sponsored uh, dechristianization campaign Dr. Doug Grothuis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.